I hope you're enjoying the series and um, we, we'll be coming back again and again to reference on what it means for the family. We, we've been tracking with Ruth. I hope she's been a challenge to you as much as she has been to me. Uh, just looking at the doors that are being flung open uh, by God and by people as more and more people give personal witness about who she is and what she has done. And today I want us to reflect on the power of choice. The power of choice. As we talk about these things, think about the power of choice. The ability that God has given you to choose and what you choose and the actions that follow out of your choices, the impact that they are bound to have, either for good or for evil. And, 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 and we've already looked at that. I'm, I'm glad the women looked at Ezer Kenegdo and that simple choice to take and to eat and then passing it on to her husband and the fact that we are all paying the price for that choice. You know, and, and sometimes we forget that we have the same opportunity to make choices that will impact generations for a lifetime and beyond. Long after you're gone from here, there are people who will be paying the price for your choices, not because of anything they did, but because of some choices and some actions that you made when you had an opportunity. And so I want us to think about this as we progressively look at Ruth's journey and what it is becoming. And all those are out of little choices that they made. Ruth's choice to refuse to be separated from her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And then taking an oath that this is a done deal, Naomi. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. So they are locked together, whether she likes it or not. Ruth sees this, she says, oh, Naomi sees this, she says, I can't persuade her, let's go. And they go. And Naomi's own decision to look at the, the effect of uh, her husband's uh, relocation in, in Moab and, and, and see the, the desolation and the death it brings, then for her to consciously turn back and say, I'm heading back to Bethlehem. You know, I'm going back to the promises of God. I'm going back to my homeland. And what that choice begins to yield, Ali, even before she knows there's a blessing, they enter, and as they enter, it's a barley harvest. God has visited his people. There are people, there's fellowship people who recognize that. Can this be Naomi? Never mind she tries to protest and says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because God has dealt bitterly with me. But God is a God of second chances and third chances. God is a God of new beginnings. And she'll begin to see this as the gracious hand of God um, meets together with, with, with the personal choices that Ruth makes to go out and glean, do what is not honorable, but do it for, with the right purpose and the right motivation, put herself to work, and slowly she finds herself in Boaz's field. And Boaz is not just some random guy. The gracious hand of God has seen her faithfulness, and God is determined to bless this woman. And we want to say that Ruth has positioned herself in a way that it is impossible for this story not to end well. And, and, and that positioning is, is informed by the choices we make. So as we converse about truth, think about your own choices and the choices that you are making on a day-to-day -day basis and where it is leading. Because that's a trajectory that you're drawing to the future, including to your children and the generations yet to come. Those who are around you and how you are influencing them. Think about it and what you're doing. As we catch up the story in chapter 4, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. The city gate in this time would 
Serve more or less like it's a commercial center, it's a business center, it's where transactions are made, it's a superhighway through which everybody has to move and pass. And so it's very much like being at, at a shopping center. And so you know that if you can't find somebody at home, you can go there, you will probably find them. If you needed a transaction witnessed, you will probably find your witnesses right there as you do the transaction. This, the elders would be there because sometimes the disputes that have raged over the week would be brought to the city gate where the elders then would, would uh, kind of mediate if there was a quarrel or an injustice or something that needed to be served or announced. That's the place. So Boaz immediately heads there because he knows he will find the king's man redeemer. Uh, over there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. So he gives him an invitation and he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Again, the invitation is easy. The minute he says that, they know there is an issue that needs to be chambored by all of them. And so they just sit down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Um, so this obviously is coming also from somewhere. The, the book, God had, we've talked about how God had mitigated against absolute po poverty and God had made sure that nobody would be permanently poor in Israel because these were his people. And there's a way that poverty um, uh, re re removes dignity uh, from the person and God did not want these of his people. And so in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25 and verse 25, uh, he had instituted there a law. Um, which is also closely related, obviously, to what we are talking about, the Kingsman Redeemer. One of them had to do with the death of a brother uh, before he, he gets a child. Now, this particular one, he talks about the land. I'll back up to verse 23 of Leviticus 25, just to put perspective on, on, what, um, on God's um, stake in, in this game. So it says this, the land must not be sold permanently. He's talking to the Israelites. This is laws he's giving to Moses to give to the Levites. Because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. So, so this is an interesting perspective. So God has given them land, but he has not um, relinquished ownership. God is the landlord. That's what he's telling them. So the land is mine, God says. Um, so you cannot sell it permanently. It's not your possession. It's my possession. Because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. This is a very important perspective because it is the perspective of a steward as opposed to an owner. I think one of the reasons that we, are very, um, we find it very difficult to share what we have is that we think we are absolute owners and we are not. God is the owner. And when he gives you stewardship, he relinquishes something to you. He say, I want you to steward this on my behalf. And it's a perspective we need to have even of our own children. You are a steward for a season. And so at one point, we will start asking for your children to send them to Germany and elsewhere. You know, they are yours for a season. After that, God wants them back to use them for the purpose for which he created them. Remember, they bear his image. Okay? Only secondarily do they bear our image. 
And, and, and it's an important perspective because then we hold lightly the things that God has given us. We, we are not so, uh, you know, um, we don't identify with ourselves with what we own. So if the land is not yours, it's very easy for you to agree to give of its produce, for example, to somebody who's poor. That's why he dictates, for example, in the laws of gleaning, you don't glean your land, you don't harvest the edges, leave them alone. Because he's the landlord, he can tell you what to do. And, and so it's the same as, as, as our possession. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, when I bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey, I bring you to cities that you did not build, you drink from wells you did not dig, you eat from vineyards you did not plant, then remember the Lord your God. You know, And don't say to yourself, it is because of my great effort and the power of my right hand that I have made this wealth. He says, why? Because it is the Lord your God who gives you the ability to build wealth. It's the Lord your God who gives you the ability to build wealth so that he can confirm his covenant with you and your forefathers. So even your hard work is not really yours. You just have to be sick for a week and you realize, Hiya. you know, I'm not all that. I can't even wake up and go to work. And after some time, the employer says, uh, by the way, and if you're not coming back, the pay goes to half. And then eventually, your final dues are computed. And that's it. Because you're not productive to them. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And if every time you withhold uh, what you think you earn, because you think you own it, God can remind you it's not really yours. And when I tell you to give to me, it's a privilege and an honor that I'm giving you to participate in the blessing that I have given you. So it's interesting that, to think that... Um, the land did not belong to them. And God wanted them to know that. That he is the landlord. And they were not to own it permanently or sell it permanently. And when you have that perspective, it's easy to give back to God. The early church, um, Acts chapter 2 verse 42 following, they met together for what? The breaking of bread for, 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 uh, for communion, uh, for prayer, and, and, and for what else? Um, and for fellowship. Then it says that everyone had everything in com common. And selling lands and houses. My people shudder. Selling land. Okay? They sold that land. They brought the money to the feet of the apostles. And then they divided them as everyone had need. It's the perspective of a steward. Not an owner. And so if God wants it, of course he can have it. Because he owns it. He owns me. So he can have me too. And that's usually the struggle. When you're struggling with salvation, it's because you think you own yourself, that you own your own destiny. But when you realize that even the next breath that you take will have to come from God, then it's very easy to submit to his lordship and say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Here is my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for your courts above. Without a struggle. Because you know who owns you. So then... But here is the law. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value of the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property, but if they do not acquire the means to repay, 
what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. Because God is cognizant of also the rights of the one who purchases. So he has to be protected. And, but, but protected until the year of Jubilee. Jubilee was the 50-year cycle that God has, had instituted. It was the greatest year, the year of Jubilee. It was the, the, the year of release. When all the poor people who had sold out their property because, and, or sold even themselves into slavery uh, for their labor, they could now go back, they could be released and go back to the property that they originally owned. So no land was you know, to be owned perpetually by, by the buyer until the year of Jubilee. On the year of Jubilee, then it would revert back to the original owners. It also mitigated against greed in property. Property could not escalate indefinitely because even in the purchase, you had to calculate the years that are remaining to the Jubilee, and that would be the true value of the land according to the number of harvests of the years that are remaining. That would be the true value of the land. So it was not an arbitrary value that you just put up in your head. You had to calculate um, how many years to the Jubilee. So what is this land worth to me? How many harvests am I going to get from here? Then you calculate the value of the land based on that. So the closer to the year of Jubilee, the cheaper will be the land. Because after all, at the year of Jubilee, then the land will have to revert back to its original owner. Mitigating against greed on the other side and mitigating against permanent poverty on the other. God's justice. So then, uh, I, I wanted to read that so that you know that this transaction is taking place under those conditions. Uh, there's a Kingsman Redeemer. Boaz is here, but there's a closer Kingsman Redeemer to come and salvage the family of the late Elimelech so that Naomi and Ruth do not have to live in perpetual poverty. So then, he says this. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back, uh, from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. So again, everything has to be done correctly um, according to who is closer to Elimelech. If he would redeem, then the right will revert back to Boaz. So in this case, Boaz is a little further than this particular redeemer. Then he said, the redeemer, I will redeem it. That should have ended the matter. But Boaz provides additional information strategically. You know, he gives me, you know, in incremental measures. Most men have no problem acquiring more property. Okay? But he says this particular property comes with a caveat. Okay, there are strings attached. Here are the strings. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Again, it's a very unselfish motive that this is going to be done. So that the name of, um, in this case, it will be Mahalon's name, who was the husband, to, the late husband to Ruth. Uh, his name does not disappear from Israel. He will continue the line of Mahalon. So whoever he bears a child with, with Ruth, will not bear his name, but the name um, of Mahalon. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he backs off. Uh, he doesn't want that additional responsibility, uh, because he says, this is going to jeopardize my own inheritance. 
probably because I cannot perpetually now own the land um, and, and the kid that we bear, if he's a boy, will inherit this land instead of my own children. And so he says, you go ahead, take that right. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. <laughs> Sometimes God is interesting, you know. This is a very transparent way of dealing. So, if you go home without one shoe, and something of, of, of great importance has taken place that you should have talked to me about. You know, so things were done openly. You can see it's in the city gate. People have seen Boaz sitting, sitting with the king, other kingsman redeemer. They've seen like 10 elders of, of the city. So they know there's something important happening here. And because it's village life, of course, everybody will get to know about it and so on. So everything had to be dealt with with great transparency. No secret sales and no secret deals. I wish it was like that when we were signing government tenders, don't you think? Yeah, so that, you know, a few people don't end up getting contracts worth billions, you know, and, and, and that these things are being done in secret. We only know it when there is an expose. Because there's no effort at any form of justice or fairness or equity. Just load up some people with, you know, with our money, because it's our money. Yeah, they channel it from treasury. Um, transparency and the way God institutes things is that there will be openness. And questions can be asked. And if you have nothing to hide, then you will say, actually, I asked for this tender. I'm the one most qualified, so I've won it. And, and here is, these are the conditions. I have met them. Then we are the poorer just because we don't follow the guidelines and the, and the principles that God has instituted. Then Boaz said to the elders of the people, so, so this guy will not redeem it. Um, so when there is deep message to Boaz, buy it yourself, he, with, he, uh, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the land, I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Mahalon. So that if there's anybody with an objection at that point, they say, hey, hang on, you know, um, we ask for this, what about this, what about the other? But if nobody raises an objection at that point, it was done publicly in front of witnesses, and so it's a clean deal. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Again, it's clear the reason I'm doing this. So there's no way that Kakid will be named Elshow if you know it is not to perpetuate the lineage of Mahalon and Elimelech that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. So by this purchase, it is a selfless purchase, it is a selfless acquisition, and by doing this, I am guaranteeing that the name of Elimelech will not be eliminated from the lineage of, of, uh, of Israel, even at the city gate. He will have a representative. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people, again, there is a scent, consensus then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said we are witnesses and because this thing has pleased them they speak a blessing may the lord make the woman who is coming into your house like rachel and leah who together build up the house of israel may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in bethlehem and it's not the first time that we are meeting boaz as a worthy man 
It's like, may you continue to be this worthy guy that you're proving yourself to be. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. It's interesting. What has become of the story and the beauty and the power and the force of it endorsed even by the community all the way from when Ruth was noticed when she was gleaning and the supervisor said, this is a hardworking girl. She's been, you know, on it since early morning. She's not stopped except for a short break. When you ask about her, her reputation, hey, you know what she did for her mother-in-law? She's a Moabitess, by the way, you know? But you know, she swore she will never leave her mother-in-law. Uh, they've gone through difficulties like you don't know. But you know what? She's faithful. She's committed. She's an amazing woman, you know, and on and on. And now the story is coming to its natural culmination or its natural climax. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And the Lord gave her conception. Conception comes from God. It's a gift of God. And, and sometimes we forget. It's like something just, you know, it, it just happens. And, and it, it's tragic that many times when it happens, even the kids are unwanted. And, and that's a tragedy. When you think about what God's blessing is, um, right from Genesis, the first thing that he pronounces to mankind is the blessing of conception and then of, of, of birth and of, of uh, multiplication. A great blessing from God. So I, I like that they recognize that it is God who gives conception. And once we start seeing God as involved in our offspring, then not only do we take our task of raising them more seriously, um, the, what we impart in them, in their spirits, in their souls, um, in the training, in the teaching, it becomes all the more important because we know God was involved from conception. Psalm 139, you know, that God saw your unformed body while, while you were, even before you were conceived in your mother's womb. And, and God knit you together intricately in the womb. God is deeply involved in the formation of image bearers. And it's not a light thing. It's a deep, deep and sacred engagement. And we need to honor it. And the fruit of the womb needs to be treated with the honor and the grace that it deserves because of who the source of that conception is. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Wow. Again, what a testimony. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is more worthy to you than seven sons. The ultimate blessing of an Israelite woman would be to bear seven sons. The number of completion in a patriarchal society. That was amazing, you know. That you, you, would be, you would never be ashamed if you contended with your enemy in the city gates. Because you are surrounded by this offspring who are powerful. But now Ruth, the Moabites, is being equated as of more value than seven sons. It's the next level of blessing. And these are the women who are blessing her like this. 
the power of choice. What Ruth chose to become. The decision she made and the actions that followed from that decision would reverberate throughout history for all time. She becomes our gatekeeper. In the Old Testament, the first to be accepted among the Gentile nations, paving a way for you and I, the Gentiles, to be incorporated into the family of God. What a woman. Her love is legendary. The oaths that, that, that she took to her mother-in-law, we steal that nowadays and apply them to married couples. That's why it should apply. But she was doing it for her mother-in-law. Another widow who had no future and no hope. And yet she gave her her all. What an example. Ruth forever removes any excuse from any of us to ever say, I'm too far away from, from, um, from the things of God. Oh, you don't know my history. My grandfather was a witch. You know, it doesn't matter what he was or what he wasn't. Ruth was by law excluded from the congregation of God's people. By law. We have been included by grace, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's opened up his arms wide in the cross, spread out, shedding his blood for us and on our behalf. And his grace is sufficient for all who will believe, but only efficient for all who will come to him by choice. That's the power of choice. Your future is not in anybody's hands. You have the ability to decide whether to follow God and be his child or to reject him and face damnation. That's up to you. Hell is a choice. People ask, how can a good God send people to hell? He can't. He doesn't. You make the choice because his heaven is open for all. He says, I created you in my image. I want you in my in my corner, all of you. And my grace is sufficient for all of you. But efficient only for those who believe. Ruth, the Moabites, being blessed by everybody because of the choices that she makes. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became her nurse, his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi, not even to Ruth. Because of how hopeless her situation was. Now she has this beautiful grandchild and this beautiful daughter-in-law. And they cannot believe that God has given them a new page, a new hope, a new beginning. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. No way Ruth would have known that this story will turn out like that. No way. So she wasn't positioning herself strategically. I will align myself with this family. She wasn't doing that. She didn't even know who these people were. She was just a lovely girl. Completely loving, kind, committed. You know. And she just did the right thing. God saw it and said, you know what? I will do incredible things for you. You think you've been a blessing to your mother-in-law? I'll show you what blessings look like. And at this point, I say, she was mainstreamed into the lineage of Christ. And it is on record in a way that it can never be erased. 
And, and look at how the, the author of, of this, it's casually stated here that um, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, as though it just happened. But the author wants us to know that these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nahashon, Nahashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. For those of you who are scholars of the Bible know that that is the exact genealogy that is recorded for who? The book of Matthew. The book of Matthew begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. She's now linked with Abraham, <laughs> with David, and with Jesus. And this is powerful, my friends, let me tell you. That the son of God is not embarrassed to name Ruth, a Moabite woman, as one of his great, 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 great grandparents. That's who she has become. Mainstreamed into the family of God. In a genealogy, that can never be erased. If Jesus was to do Christmas, say, you know, have a Christmas party and call his people, Ruth would be right there. From the nation of Moab, Ruth the Moabites, Atakuja. She's part of family. She made that choice. You know who else is part of family? Listen to the gene genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. All right? We are on to... Um, Ju Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, of course, and, and, and we know uh, the story of Joseph and so on in, 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 in Egypt. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you know what that story was? It was another scandal. Jesus is full of scandals. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, after the Joseph incident, when the brothers sell off Joseph, I don't know whether it was out of guilt or whatever, Judah breaks off from his brothers and goes to a place called Adulam, okay, among the Canaanites. And there he gets a Canaanite chick and he marries her, okay? He marries this girl and then the, um, they, they get a son. He's called Er, E-R, emergency room, E-R, like that, okay? <laughs> so he gets this E-R guy and, and who is the firstborn? All right? And, and for some reason, we, we are just told that Er was wicked in the eyes of God and God killed him. Okay? So Er is dead, but he had a wife called Tamar. And Tamar now is left as a widow. And so what uh, Judah says, again, he knows this, this, the Levirate law that I read to you the other day. He tells uh, the, uh, the, the younger son, Onan, come and marry your brother's wife, so that you can perpetuate his lineage. But Onan decides, ah, I will do what? Perpetuate it, so the kids will not be mine. So the Bible says that every time he slept with her, with Tamar, he would, you know, um, pour his semen on the floor so that she does not conceive. Okay? 
and, and, and by the way, that's, that, I've had people teaching on, on that text as a, um, in connection with you know, why you should not masturbate. That's not what it's teaching at all. That, it doesn't have to do with that. And what the Bible says is that what Onan did was wicked in the eyes of God, so God also killed him. So two sons are dead. So Tamar is left still a widow. So there's still another boy. I think he's called Selah or somebody. He's too young to marry at that point. So Judah says to Tamar, come to my house and live as a widow. When this other boy is old enough, then he can marry you. He's still perpetuating the liberate mar marriage, which was the law. But now the boy grows, and Judah thinks, hey, Er died, Onan died, so I'll not give him to, to Tamar. So he refuses to give him to Tamar. So Tamar lives as a widow. Then one day, his, wife, his own wife dies, the Canaanite woman. Then he goes away to share some sheep. As he is there, Tamar, her pass, goes, disguises herself and sits by the city gate. Judah comes. He's not a righteous guy. He thinks she's a prostitute. So he decides to strike a deal. He goes in, you know, does whatever. But before he does all that, she says, what pledge will you give me that you're going to pay me after you've done your business? Um, he asks her, what do you want? Give me your cord, your seal, and your staff as a pledge that you will pay me when you're done. So they go and do business, and, 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 and he's, he leaves his, his cord and his staff and whatever else. Then he goes away. The girl gets pregnant. That was the plan. She had timed it well. All right? When she comes back home, she's pregnant. And then Judah is told, hey, your daughter-in-law is guilty of prostitution. Hatiki! Wow! Let her happen. Who are you? Nanakana me. Then he says, in fact, he says, she must be burned to death. That wasn't even the law. The law was stoning as though that's better. But, you know, burning is a whole new level. She must be burned to death. Then the girl says, I am pregnant by the person who owns these items, this stuff, this cord, and this seal. See if you recognize them. Judah sees his things. Malaria. What to do? To his credit, he says, she's more righteous than I. Of course, she's not put to death. Out of that um, encounter, she gives birth to Perez, and I don't know what there. Sarah. Zera. It's called Zera. Perez and Zera. These are the kids that are born out of that incestuous relationship. It's amazing that you'd think that those details should be hidden by the Bible. But what it says here. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zera, by Tamar. So that you can go back to the story. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nahashon, and Nahashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. So this Boaz we've been reading about, the righteous guy, these are his roots. She is called Rahab the prostitute. And that's how the Bible refers to her. Rehab, the prostitute. You, you know, uh, I, I think, I think um, we don't quite understand the heart of God. 
Because if you read some of these scandalous stories, you would think that God would like to distance himself from some of these things. But you see, he said, it is not the righteous who need help. It's the sick who need a doctor. And he says, you are sick people. And I've come and I identified with you. Judah, in his sickness, in his sin, he gives birth. You know what? He's still proud to be called the lion from the tribe of who? Judah. This is the Judah. That's the guy who is a patriot who originates the name. And God comes and redeems that name. And now, it's a, it's a name that signifies courage and righteousness and beauty and glory and faithfulness. Rahab, the prostitute. Let me give you a, a testimony of Rahab. These are the words she said. On the day that the spies went into the land, and she took the spies and hid them, when the king sent for the spies, she said, I said, you, yeah, they passed through here, but they went that way. She sent them in the wrong direction. So these guys were puzzled. It's like, why are you helping us? This is what she said. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof where she had hidden them and said to them, I know. I want you to hear the power of choice. I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and all the kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. This is a prostitute's testimony. Meanwhile, the king is looking for the spies to kill them. She's decided I'll hide them because these guys are of great value. And their God is not a God to joke around with. I will align myself properly now so that when the time comes for us to be Nyoroshua, I can be spared. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them. She's a tough negotiator. She's incorporated the whole family, the whole clan. Our lives for your lives. This is the pledge of the spies. The men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now, this is how she makes her deal. It's a question of personal choice. Never mind she was a prostitute and not a regular one, a Canaanite one. Those ones were another level when it came to wickedness. It's true. Consider this, the power of choice. These are the people that are involved in the genealogy of the Messiah. Jesus Christ. Did I finish that genealogy? And it goes on. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Not just any other David. And then it will continue on. And God will not spare David either. He will say, Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, who, whose husband was Uriah? 
Sasa ni nini wewe? Sio tunajua ungewacha tu tuende. Eh? No, he wants you to know the whole story. God doesn't hide anything. And he still says David was a man after my own heart. Because when I confronted them, he repented. Consider this. How are you living your life today in terms of your personal moral choices? And are you on a trajectory that will lead to God's blessings? Or are you on a trajectory that will lead to his curses and him opposing you? There are battles you can't win. You can't win against God. So be like Rahab. Align yourself to him. And it doesn't matter what you're trading in or what you're doing. God is not concerned. But he knows he's created you in his image and you have the ability to make a moral choice to do the right thing even if all your life you have sinned. He knows you can turn and say, you know what? I'm done. From now onwards, even Joshua, the man of God, after he tells them about how God has done for them, he's given us all this land, now live obediently, obey his commands, etc., etc., so that he may bless us. He has to make a personal choice. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can make that decision as the one who leads your household. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Quickly, as we finish, our time is long gone. Two things you need to think about very seriously. There are two chicks that God is very concerned about. Two chicks. <laughs> Tell your neighbor two chicks. <laughs> if you're married, he's concerned about how you're treating that chick in your house. He's so concerned. On the basis of that, you will appropriate God's blessings or his curse. He is very concerned about how you're treating her. In fact, he says, if you don't treat her well, I'll not hear your prayers. Unaomba inagonga muamba. I'll not listen to you because you're not serious with life, says the Lord. Let me see if I can get a text some of you think I'm making these things up. <laughs> First Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So there are things that you will do. But because of the way you behave at home, you come and plead with God, and he doesn't hear, and he doesn't answer. Do not miss out on the blessings of God because of a small, foolish, selfish thing that you can rectify. Treat her well. That's what God is saying. She's a blessing to you. Because God said it's not good for the man to be alone and make a helper suitable for him. And before you married her, God prepared her for you. Then he gives her to you and then you mistreat her. God says, I'll not listen to you because I'm her father. Those of you who are older will know this. Once your daughter gets married, you're very concerned about how that man treats her. And you want to know that he will treat her well. Okay? So God is the father of this girl that you married. 
And if you mistreat her, he takes it very personally. And he says, don't come to me with your prayers. I'll not hear you. I know how you're treating her. Chick number one. Chick number two is called his bride, the church of God. God is concerned about how you treat that chick. If you neglect her, if you ignore her, if you mistreat her in any way, God says, this is my bride. Unacheza na msichana wanani? This is my bride. I died for her. I paid the ultimate price. I bled to death to redeem her to myself. And now I'm working hard to cleanse her, to beautify her, so that I can present her as a bride before my father without stain or blemish or anything. So don't play with her. You honor her and you respect her and you support her. And if you don't, I will neglect you and I will not be supportive of you and I will not hear your prayer. Those two girls could determine your destiny. Treat them well if you're wise. If you will not treat them well for their sake, treat them well for your sake. Be selfish. Say, I want to appropriate all the blessings of God. And so, whatever she needs, whatever I can do, I will do for her. I will beautify her so that God is impressed with what I'm doing with this chick. Because she was his before he gave her to you. Treat her well. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you.